0: Hope Covenant Church. It is the first pastor, or it is the first day for Pastor Paul to be with us, and <laughs> and I just I just wanted everybody. Um, maybe there are some newcomers and people that didn't know. For the last year, we've been searching for a pastor, and God has been faithful to lead us to Paul for the last. Uh, year Scott Oas and the elders have led us faithfully and put us in a great position to have a new pastor. We've just studied. I am a church member, the book, so we're ready and roaring to go. Um, I've seen how people in this congregation have stepped up, taken leadership upon themselves, reached out to others who were in need. God has just been so faithful. So as I thought about saying a few words... I thought, I'll go to the Bible, I'll I'll impress them with my knowledge. And so, I got this, uh, the only transition I could think of was from Moses to Joshua. That's the only one I could think of when I started this. I've thought of a few more now, by the way. But, you know, the Lord said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. I'm going to be with you. Be strong and courageous with these people. And then after he says that like three times, if I'm in the right place at all because I lost it right as I stood up, he continues to say, be strong and courageous. And that's really, (laughs) trust me, Joshua won somewhere in there. (laughs) But God has been faithful and God will be faithful. And I'm excited for this new adventure. Please join us uh, with Pastor Paul as we start. Thank you.
1: Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you so much for all your support. Mary is still back in Chicago. We're trying to wrap up selling our um, house and then transitioning. I fly tonight back to Chicago and then drive tomorrow. A friend of mine is going to drive with me, so I should be, we're hoping to be here Tuesday night, but we'll see how that goes. Um, but want to say thank Scott. I was here in June, and Scott showed me around, and he was just extremely gracious and supportive. And um, just thank God for him, and then for the whole search team um, for Stacey and her leadership. Um, it is a privilege to be surrounded by such wonderful people. Well, I thought long and hard today, or for today, of what to preach on the first day as your pastor. And I'll be sharing what I think sums up my thinking on the Christian life and Christian discipleship. And much of what I'm going to share comes from a sermon I heard years ago by a guy in the name of John Lynch, this is over a decade ago, and he presented two radically different ways of seeing the Christian life. So let us pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Amen. If you look at the Bible and you consider um, the passages where everything's good, everything's right um, and perfect, basically you take those two pages and that's it. (laughs) Okay, that's it. That's when things are good and right and everything's hunky-dory. The rest is God's plan to redeem us and to transform us and to make amends for all the mess that we created. It's the story of God making things right. And so almost from the very beginning, we are in a terrible predicament because the very first person, Adam, Adam and Eve, passed down to us a terrible legacy. After Adam had failed for the first time, after he had sinned, he hid himself. He hid himself. You see, sin breaks our relationship with God, and so after Adam sinned, he hid himself. And God comes to him and says, Adam, why are you hiding? And Adam said, because I was naked. I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And Adam was the very first person who ever looked over his shoulder. Who's looking at me? Who's judging me? Adam hid himself because he felt judged. And now it comes down to us. When we get afraid, when we get embarrassed, when we get exposed, when someone has done something to us or we've done something to someone else, something happens and we feel naked and so we want to hide. And we become convinced that we are not enough, that we don't match up and we learn to hide from one another. Adam began it and we've turned it into an art form. From earliest, we can remember we have performed for acceptance. We have performed for acceptance. If I'm good enough, pretty enough, talented enough, together enough, if I'm diligent, right, correct, beautiful, if I'm all those things, then I will have, I will be accepted and have a good life. I will be loved and blessed and happy. But if not, I will be rejected and have a lousy life. It is the Santa Claus is coming to town theology. Santa Claus is coming to town, you all know the song. We created Santa Claus because we can't handle God. When in fact, we can't handle Santa Claus. (laughs) Think about the song, and you know how we sing it. We all. The more I think about this, the the worse. it, It just troubles me. When we sing, "Santa Claus is coming to town," we sing it nice and cheery, right? You better watch out. You better not. You better not. No, no, pout. Pout, not shout, people, come on. You better not pout. I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list and he's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. And he sees you when you're he knows when you're he knows if you've been bad or good. So you better be good. Why? Really? Why? So, be good so you will get what? Stuff. And that's it. The culture created it and we sing it because we believe it. Your value is on how much good you do and how little wrong you do. And he is constantly writing down all the wrong you do so that he can bring it up at a future reference. He can bring it up again. So you better be good no matter how you feel. You are constantly on trial. You are constantly being evaluated. And if you want good things to happen in your life, then you better figure out how to keep this guy pleased. It is genetically wired into us since Adam. And we learn early how to perform and do the dance. The highest value is being accepted, and it appears that the means of acceptance in this world is performance, and performance is hard because I fail. Think of it, a student comes home from class and gets 98 questions right out of 100, and what do you say as a parent? Why would you miss those two? Why do we do that? Why do we do that? And when I fail, when we fail We do a dance, and we put on a mask, and we hide. But then comes the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 has these great words for us. From the Apostle Paul, he said, "...for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast." You have been saved by grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E, or basically it's God's unmerited favor. He loves us because he loves us, and he shows us his grace, and we are saved by grace through faith. It's not something you've done, it's something you accept. It is a gift of God. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when the gospel comes to us and we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we become The righteousness of God. We are clothed with Christ's righteousness and we are no longer naked. And I believe this. And then I am a new creation. And I start believing I'm lovable just because God loves me. I'm accepted and I'm delighted and I'm holy and I'm righteous because of what Jesus has done for me. And I I begin to believe that he created me lovable. That I'm exactly who he wants me to be. And he only needed a way to break through sin and death separation. And that radically remakes us. That's the precious story of Jesus. And so I believe it and I start walking my life alive. Alive in Jesus Christ. But then something happens. That old lie slips back in. That you need to perform to be accepted. And the lie is subtle and gradual. The devil wants to mess up the way we think. And all of a sudden, you don't feel so close to God anymore. Something's happened, and God seems distant. And here's what you do. You think God's absence in your life or the bad circumstances in your life are due to God's displeasure with you. And so you have to make things right yourself. You're on a journey to make things right with God. And not long after you're on this journey, you come to a fork in the road, and at the fork there's a huge pole, and there's two signs. And one says, This path pleasing God, I gotta figure out which this path pleasing God, and this path trusting God. You don't want to choose, you just want to be on the path. I like being on this path, I want both, but you have to choose. And they will become the primary motivation of your heart for the rest of this journey. Will I start off pleasing God or will I start off trusting God? So I look at those and I go, trusting God. I don't really know what that means. So I look at pleasing God and I say, of course, that's what I want to do. I want to live to please God. After all that God has done for me, shouldn't we want to please God? I want to make him happy. And so I go down this road. I go down the path of pleasing God. And after a while, I come to this huge building, and there's a door in the building, and above the door, there's a sign. that says, striving to be all God wants you to be. And I say, of course, that's it. I have to get serious about my faith. I want to be all that God wants me to be. It sounds like the Marines, doesn't it? (laughs) This is what's been missing. I just needed a little direction in my life. This time, God and I are going to be close because I'm going to invest in pleasing God. And there's a doorknob there, and above the doorknob it says self-effort. And I say, of course, I've got to care. I've got to be invested in this. I've got to do my part. I've got to get fired up, and I want to be around people who are fired up for the Lord to please him. And so I open the door, and I walk in. And there's this huge room, and there's lots of people there. And a hostess comes up to me and says, Welcome to the room of good intentions. And I reply, this is great. I'm finally in the room with people who are fired up about God, the sold-out people of God. How's everyone doing? And all of a sudden the room gets quiet. And almost in one voice everyone goes, "We're fine." We're fine. The family is fine, our kids are fine, the job is fine. We are fine. We are the fine people of God. (laughs) And the hostess says, and how are you? And you say, well, I've been struggling a little bit. I've been having some issues, but things are going to be so much better now that I'm here with you, the sold-out people of God. And, And I just can't wait to be here, but you know, I have been struggling with some things in my life I've really been having problems with. And the hostess puts up her finger, and she goes, shh, and she hands me a mask. And I look at all the people in the room, and they're all nodding. So I put on the mask, and I say, I'm fine. And the room goes back to their conversations. You see, you are in the room of good intentions. And you walk to the back of the room, and I see this banner there, and it says, Working on my sin... To achieve an intimate relationship with God. Working on my sin to achieve an intimate relationship with God. And I say, yeah, of course, that's what's been wrong. There is this sin in my life that's keeping me from God. And when I try to talk to God and when I'm praying, He seems way over there and I'm way over here. And my sin is what's separating us. And I've got to start working on my sin. That's what's been wrong. I haven't been working on my sin, but I'm going to shrink this sin somehow, and the more I work on it, the closer I'll get to God, and life will be better. But the more I try and work on my sin, the further away God seems. The more disappointed I think he is in me, and if I try harder this time, though, I just need to try harder and work on this sin so I can get back close to God. But no one tells me that I can't work on my sin. I don't know how to work on my sin. Now, at first, being in this room felt great. Everyone was working so hard to please God. But as the weeks turn into months, I notice a few things. People are tired. They're working so hard. And many people seem alone. And in fact, some seem hurt. And most of the conversations are pretty superficial and guarded. And I find that I'm starting to think differently myself. I'm no longer relaxed in this room. I have this nagging anxiety that if I don't behave well, if I don't control my sin, then I'm going to be on the outs with everyone in this room and probably with God. And if people knew what was going on in my life, they wouldn't even want me in this room. And so I keep trying more and more to sin less. But the longer I am in this room, the more disappointed I feel. Despite all my efforts and all my strivings, I keep on sinning and I'm making every effort to please God who never seems pleased enough. And I'm so tired. And gradually I start to realize that the path of pleasing God has turned into what must I do to keep Him pleased. And eventually I'm so tired I just stumble out of the room. And I go back to the fork in the road You see, the room of good intentions has this problem. It reduces godliness to this formula. More right behavior, less wrong behavior equals godliness. More right behavior, less wrong behavior equals godliness. And that is anything but biblical. And when we embrace it, it sets ourselves up to live in hiddenness. It disregards the godliness and the righteousness that God has already placed in us. You see, we can never resolve our sin by working on it. We may change the behavior for a while, but it's like moving the deck tears on the Titanic. And though this toxic thinking has let us down a thousand times, we keep on trying to control our bad behaviors and our sins so that one day we can have a closer relationship with God. But somehow you're back at the crossroads again. And you look at the path of trusting God. It seems so much less heroic than the other path. It doesn't give me anything to do. But I walk down this road a little bit and I come to another big building. And there's a door in the building and above the door it says, living out of who God says I am. I don't really know what that means. But there's a door handle and above the door handle it says, humility. So I open the door, and I walk in. The room's full of people, and the hostess comes up to me and says, Welcome to the room of grace. I guardedly say thank you, and then the hostess says, And how are you? Well, we've been through this before, and I say, I'm fine. I am just fine. Who wants to know? And the room stays quiet. So I feel judged, and I say out in a loud voice, you know what, I'm not fine. I haven't been fine for a long time. I'm tired, I'm confused, I'm afraid, and I feel guilty and I'm lonely. And I'm sad most of the time and I can't make my life work. I'm so far behind and a befuddle that I don't know what to do next that most of the time I just feel frozen. And if you knew half of my daily thoughts, you wouldn't want me in your little room here so there. I am not fine, but thanks for asking. And so I reach for the doorknob to walk out of the building, And I hear from the back of the room, Is that it? Is that all you got? I'll take your confusion, guilt, and bad thoughts, and I'll raise you, compulsive sin, and dead up to my eyeballs. The hostess nudges me and says, What he's saying is, You're welcome here. And there's much warm laughter as I'm ushered into the sweet and and kind and painfully authentic people of God. And there is not a mask to be seen. I'm in the room of grace. And there's a banner on the back wall. It says, standing with Jesus, with my sin in front of us, working on it together. You are in the room of grace. Grace, it's a word that's used 122 times in the New Testament, God's unmerited favor. And if you want another way to think of it, that G-R-A-C-E, God's riches that he gives to you at Christ's expense. And in the New Testament, there were a number of religious leaders who didn't want the Apostle Paul telling people about grace because they felt that if you took away all the rules and all the regulations and the list of all the things that they were supposed to do, then people would do Christianity light. And they said, people will take advantage of God if you take away the rules and regulations. And the Apostle Paul said, well, you're right except for two things. One is, they have a new identity. On my worst day, I am Christ in me. On my worst day, I am Christ in me. With a robe of righteousness, His righteousness around me. And I always have the Holy Spirit within me. And the Apostle Paul says, they don't want to take advantage of God. But if they wanted to, you'd take advantage of God with grace or law. But what if the goal was to free our hearts so that we could have an intimate and close relationship with the God who loves us? That would take grace. You see, God took a gamble on us with grace. If God gave gave us grace, would it work or would our children grow up to do Christianity light? The New Testament gamble is this. What if, this is God saying, what if I tell them who they are? And what if I take away any element of fear or condemnation or judgment or rejection? What if I tell them that I love them and I have always loved them and I can't love them any more than I love them right now? And I love them as much as I love my own son. There is nothing they can do that will make my love go away. And what if I told them that they are righteous right now with the righteousness of Jesus Christ? What if I told them that they could stop beating themselves up? What if I told them that even if they ran to the very ends of the earth, that if they did the most horrible, unthinkable things, and they were unfaithful in their marriages, that when they came back, I would receive them with tears and a party? What if I told them that I do not keep a log of past offenses, of how little they pray and how often they've let me down, or promises they don't keep? What if I told them that I am their savior and that they're going to heaven? It is a done deal. What if I told them that they have a new nature? That they are saints, not saved sinners. What if I told them that I actually live with them now? That I put my love and my power and nature inside of them? What if I told them that they don't have to wear a mask? What if I told them that when they mess up, I will never get back at them. And if they were convinced that their bad circumstances were not my way of evening the score. And what if they knew that the basis of our friendship was not on how little they sinned, but on how much they let me love them. What if they had permission to stop trying to impress me in any way? What if I told them that they could hurt my heart, but I would never hurt theirs? What if I told them I actually like hip-hop music? That the these and nows sort of bug me, that they could pray with their eyes open and they'd still go to heaven? What if I told them there's no hidden agenda? What if I told them it wasn't about their self-effort, but allowing me to live my life through them? You see, if you're on the path of living to please God, it's all about you. It's all about our self-effort, our striving, our effort, our abilities, and it's never enough. If all I bring to God is my moral attempts to please Him by solving my sin, then I'm back at the insufficient square one that puts me in need of a Savior. But I think back to the room of grace and to the banner that's on the back there, and it says, standing with Jesus, with my sin in front of us, working on it together. Remember in the room of good intentions, I thought, God was way over there, I'm way over here, and my sin's separating us. But what if that's not the case? What if Jesus comes right up to you, puts his arm around you, and looks out at your sin? What would he say? He'd go, whoa, that's a lot of sin. My, my, my. But we'll work on it together. I've known about this from the beginning of time, and my blood covers it all. I've got it covered. Have we been changed? When we accept the gift of God's grace, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, have we been changed? Absolutely. As night is from day, we have been changed. You have a brand new core identity. We've been changed. And now we get to mature into who we are. You see, if you bring a caterpillar to a biologist and ask them to analyze it and to describe its DNA, they would say, Paul, I know this looks like a caterpillar and acts like a caterpillar, but scientifically in every testable DNA of DNA result, it is fully and completely a butterfly. Think of that. Isn't it incredible that God has wired into a creature looking nothing like a butterfly, a complete butterfly identity. And because the caterpillar is a butterfly in its essence, it will one day display the behavior and attitudes and attributes of a butterfly. The caterpillar matures into what is already true about it. And so it is with us. God has given us the DNA Of godliness. We are saints because of what Christ has done for us. We are Christ's righteousness. And God knows our DNA. And he knows that we are Christ in us. On your worst day, you are Christ in you. That is who you are. And God is asking us to join him in what he already knows to be true about us. To be saints. To live as saints. Live that way, not so you can become saints, but because you are a saint, live this way. And I invite you today, get out of the room of good intentions and into the room of grace. Let me end with the words of the Apostle Paul from Romans chapter 8. He starts that chapter with these words, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You go on to verse 31. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, In this creation, will separate you from the love of God. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to know of your love for us. What a privilege it is to know your grace. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us the way you do and that you've promised to be with us at all times and in all situations. And so, Lord, help us to live as your people whom you have redeemed, who you have transformed, and help us to grow into the people you've called us to be. And we will give you all the praise and glory. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.